This is The Other 51. I'm Brian Moritz. This week, we're trying something a little different. Instead of the usual half-hour interview with a writer about their career, and there's a great one with Matthew Fairburn from New York Upstate coming next week, this week's show is going to feature a few former guests talking about Tom Wolfe, the great journalist and novelist who died this week. They're going to talk about what Wolfe meant to them and their memories of his writing. First up is Mike Sielski, sports columnist from the Philadelphia Inquirer, who was on the podcast last year. He said he first discovered Wolf as a middle schooler. Uh, I discovered him, I remember it very distinctly, in eighth grade. Uh, my dad had a copy of The Right Stuff lying around the uh, the house, and I had to do an uh, uh, eighth grade book report uh, a couple months out, so I started diving in. And, you know, at first, you're reading about the space program and Chuck Yeager and you know, just the adventure side of it hooked me as a, you know, 14-year-old. But um, the more I read it, the more I enjoyed um, the way it was written. Um, you know, and it's kind of become a cliche when you talk about Tom Wolfe, talk about the way he wrote, but I had never encountered anything like that before in my reading life. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, the description of Jaeger and the, the phrase, you know, good old boy, obviously I've heard that phrase before, but I had no idea that it was really Wolf who coined it. Um, and then moving on in high school, I kept reading him um, and read him enough that come 11th grade, which uh, was the year at my school that you had to do basically the first major research paper um, of your high school life. It was 10 to 15 pages. I remember it was the most daunting you know, <laughs> task I'd ever taken on academically in 11th grade English class. And uh, you had to pick an author and research him and analyze him or her and analyze some of their works and uh, and I picked Wolf and I focused on the right stuff and, and Bonfire of the Vanities, which I had read the previous summer. Uh, and you know, that was it. I was a Tom Wolf um, from <laughs> then on in. So what, I mean, what about, I mean, the, the way he writes obviously is so kind of distinctive, but as you kind of made your way through his work and as you grew yourself as a writer and as someone who does this for a living, kind of what continued to draw you in, what continued to, to impress you and, and, and suck you into to his writing. The combination of the reporting and the writing uh, and knowing, you know, and you know this too, having done the job, having been a reporter at any level um, and, and any of us who kind of aspire to write in particular, you know, long form kind of writing, whether it's, you know, particularly long newspaper, magazine length pieces or books or things like that, um, to know what it took for him to to do the reporting, the time it must have taken and the hours he must have spent and the days he must have spent and the detail that he was able to collect and then to be able to really synthesize it and process it and, and frame it and write it in a way that remains as fresh now as it did then. I mean, you pick up, you know, radical sheep and you are, you are getting kind of a, a razor blade kind of cutting through, you know, what so many people think the sixties were really all about. And, you know, I, I read a tribute um, to, to Wolf by Tom, you know, from, you know, who's now at ESPN, the magazine, and who at the time I think was at Esquire. And uh, he mentioned Radical Chic and he talked about, you know, the thing that made the piece great and that, that made it kind of subversive was not that Wolf documented necessarily the fact that Leonard Bernstein, you know, had a dinner party with the Black Panthers. It was that he made fun of it. It was, he wrote it funny. And that's what made it truly subversive. Like he didn't take it seriously. He thought it was all ridiculous. He was writing with a point of view. In a way, these 
these sweeping magazine pieces or his books with these exclamation points and the capital letters and the, the catchphrases and all that, what made them great was that he was writing from a, a real strong point of view as well. And the combination of taking that reporting, the, the spectacular and kind of, um, you know, it, it, the kind of writing that you, you could try, but it, it's, it's never going to, you're never going to be able to replicate it is completely sui generis. And then to be able to write with that strong voice, that strong point of view, um, the more I got into my career, the more I grew to appreciate exactly what he was able to do with the form. Yeah, that freshness, you know, the, kind of the, the one of the books that I always I kept coming back to for for me for, with Wolf was the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. Mm -hmm. And yep. same thing, you know, yeah, it's still as you know, I'm looking at the pages right now and it's still you know, like you kind of get that a sense of that era and it and it's. Yeah, it's that vibrant, no bullshit. Like this is, you know, really what's going on, and at at this time, and he, ca you know, few writers I think captured moments in time better than he did in that way. Yeah, and and what's funny about that book is that the the opening he was his his lead, so to speak, his opening sentences are incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, and the opening sentence of the Electric Kool Aid Acid Test, I say to people all the time, if somebody has a good idea. Um, you know, a bunch of us are going to go out to dinner or something like that. Somebody suggests a good place or um, I'm at work and we're divvying out story ideas and somebody makes a good suggestion. I'll say, that's good thinking there, Cool Breeze. <laughs> and that's the first sentence of the yeah. book. And I do it all the time. And it's at the point now where I don't even think about it. Um, but that that was Tom Wolf. is, you know, nobody had ever used the phrase good old boy, really, until he used it in describing Chuck Yeager and the astronauts and the Mercury seven astronauts and the right stuff. And, you know, it, it's, that's just amazing that, that, you know, if you go back and um, look at his lexicon, you know, the phrases and the terms, you know, go back to the bonfire of the vanities and, you know, that, that Sherman McCoy was a master of the universe and, and his wife was a social X-ray. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he had these, this ability to generalize that was so specific um, and really just kind of captured whatever moment he was in at the time. I, I, I do remember I was shockingly late, like in my 20s, I think, when I realized that the right stuff, like he coined that. Like it's one of those where it's yep. so around like the space program and that era that like you almost like, oh, he wrote a book using that term. Like, no, he's the one who coined the term the right stuff for that that group of astronauts it's like you know i remember i was in my mid-20s shockingly old to realize that but still that's an that that's an oh my gosh moment you realize the effect he the impact that he had yeah exactly and, and i was just going to say this brian go back and read i don't know maybe you were going to get to this but if you have a chance go back and read his um his esquire piece from i think 1963 called the last american hero on uh the stock car driver junior johnson oh um, yeah i haven't read know, that in years yeah yeah, it's, 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 it was meant, you know, it was one of the top pieces in, in, um, the anthology of the best American sports writing of the century. And what's amazing about that piece is that it still holds up. If you read it now, it, it could describe the South and America today as well as it could back then. It, it isn't just that it was a snapshot of a particular place in time. There's enough there. He taps into something that's everlasting about American culture. And that's true of, that piece, it's true of Radical Chic, it's true of The Bonfire of the Vanities, it's true of A Man in Fault, which, um, you know, is another, you know, great, great piece of writing that he's done.
It, it, you you mentioned his reporting, and you know certainly with Wolf, you think of style, like the writing style, the mm-hmm. exclamation points, and all that, and and the personal style too. You know the white suits, you know the 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 you know he, you know I, he's he's a guy who you can unironically call iconic. I think from from a stylist stylistic point of view. But how much? And this is kind of I'm sure writer cliche to talk about today. But how much does that you know? kind of mask or you know hide from people the reporting and the the the, like legwork that he put into all of these stories oh that absolutely does i mean that's that's the thing is that you know it gets back to what i said earlier about um being in the business and knowing that if you if you don't have the goods if you don't have the reporting goods you can dress up your style all you want to you know it's still going to be empty calories if you don't have the stuff, if you don't have the substance. And that's what's amazing about going back and reading, you know, both Wolf's journalism, um, you know, his nonfiction books and uh, his novels, because his novels have that same kind of texture. And he would talk often about the, the amount of reporting he would do just to be able to write one of his novels so that he felt, you know, totally immersed in the world that he was going to write about. Um, and so that when you when you see the six exclamation points at the end of a sentence or you see you know, the, um, yeah, the onomatopoeia that he would use, you know, the vroom to describe a race car, you know, it's grounded in his having been there and experienced it and used all his senses. Um, you know, it's not just imagination. It is, this is really happening. Or if it's the case of his novels, he knew what was really happening and is rendering it in an accurate and yet still creative way. Yeah, one of the books of his that I I I liked, I think it, it I don't know, I think it was critically panned, but I really liked it when I read it was I am Charlotte Simmons and I just mm-hmm. remember the vividness of his, you know, of the descriptions and of like the the painting painting a picture of Charlotte and Char- and Charlotte's world where she came from. I think it's it it really I mean to this I haven't read that book in probably 15 years, but it stands out to me still even th- thinking back on it like how vivid a picture that was. Yeah, and and it's funny. I just I read a um, a writer today. I forget it might have been um, it might have been GQ. It might have been National Review, um, who revisited Charlotte. I am Charlotte Simmons, and made the point that you know while a lot of people, a lot of critics panned it at the time, go back and reread it and see how prescient it actually was about what the college experience uh, has become for a lot of females. You know, female undergraduates in this country. Um, you know, it ties into the Me Too movement of today. Um, it, it's, it, you know, and that basically the writer was giving him far more credit, well, far more credit for kind of seeing the future um, in a way that the people who were critiquing him when I am Charlotte Simmons came out really didn't appreciate and, and in fairness, probably couldn't appreciate it at the time. Do you have a, a singular favorite Wolf piece? Wow, that's a really good question. Um you know, the, uh, the, the Chuck Yeager chapter in The Right Stuff is pretty freaking great. <laughs> um, you know, I, I go back and pick that up and read that from time to time. The description, his description of Yeager uh, breaking Mach 1 um, and, and the lead-in, the detail that he gets all that. I always think of the anecdote that he gets where, um, you know, Yeager's out horseback riding with his wife the night before he's going to go up you know, in the X one and he falls off the horse and breaks a rib, cracks a rib. And so he gets, he enlists another pilot to saw off a piece of a broomstick that he tucks under his jacket and under his shirt to bring with him on the plane. 
because he realizes because his rib is broken, he's not going to be able to lean over and and slam the door of the plane shut. Mm. So he needs the he needs the the half of the broomstick to get the leverage to be able to reach over and slam that shut. And it's, it's those kind of you know this. It's those kind of details that absolutely make a story. And and it's the kind of thing where if it were fiction, you'd say, ah, you, you're stretching a little far with, the, <laughs> you know, with plausibility here. But because you know it actually happened and that he was able to get it, it makes it that much better. Um, you know, I love The Last American Hero. Um, I'm trying to think, um, you know, the, gosh, there are so many. Radical Chic is just, the, the first couple graphs of that are just amazing, where he describes Leonard Bernstein's dream, um, you know, and, and just the turns of phrases, um, one of which... I love that I can't repeat today because it, it, it includes a term that's, you know, we probably shouldn't use nowadays. It's, um, you know, but if you go back and read the first graph, I think it's the last sentence of the first graph. And it's at the time, it must have been just like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this guy's written this. This is incredible. Um, so those would be a few. So I got to ask, did you ever have a, uh, a Tom Wolf phase where you tried to in your writing? You know, I, I don't think so, only because I think even when I started to recognize and appreciate um, the way he could do it, I, I, I knew it was so different and so, um, you know, so unique that there was no way I'd be able to replicate it. I, I grew up, you know, more, more trying to replicate Bill Lyon, my mentor from the Columbus and the Philadelphia Inquirer, um, you know, and and that didn't go well either. But, um, you know, I think I kind of recognized early on that, um, you know, nobody, least of all me, could could try to, to do what he did. I think I think now it serves more as a model for the kind of reporting I would like to do when I take on a big project, a big, you know, a narrative story or something like that. Um, you know, you aspire to get that level of detail. Um, and And what's funny is that you can see strains of him through, you know, even truly great transcendent writers since then. I mean, you see it in, for instance, Gary Smith. Um, I, you know, it just seems there's similarities there. I've never asked Gary whether he actually considered Wolf a, you know, a model or something like that. But there's a similar similarity there that's that's hard to deny. Um, I can you know, see some. I, I can see similar. Uh, sorry, but I can see similarities in Charlie Pierce too, and a lot of that. Yeah, exactly. That type of writing. Exactly. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I. Uh, um, I joked with somebody on uh, on Facebook today that, that Tom Wolf showed, um, you know, what you could do with an exclamation point, and Stephen A. Smith has shown what you absolutely should not do with an exclamation <laughs> point, and that's kind of both ends of the spectrum there. So I, you mentioned your favorites. I'm just wondering if there's a different. It, it probably might be the same answer, but do you, if so, nobody, if somebody listening to this hasn't read a Wolf, shame on them. But if or they haven't read them in a long time, is there a, a good intro, a good place to start? Do you think? Um, I would say go to the Last American Hero. Um, if you're a sports fan, uh, I would say if you're not a sports fan, pick up the right stuff um, because. You know, it's in terms of a narrative, in terms of getting getting the experience of and understanding what Wolf could do in a nonfiction setting. I think that's about as as good as you can get. Um, you know, that's one of those books where you read and you go, "Oh my God, I can't even I can't even begin to say that I do the same thing that this guy does." You know, that I go, "Oh, what do you do?" Yeah, I write. Oh yeah, well, so it's Tom Wolf. Well, yeah, that's true. Mike Sielski from the Philadelphia Inquirer.
Next up, we've got a quick Twitter story from novelist Rebecca Mackay, who was on the show earlier this year. She tweeted this out on Tuesday of this week after news of Wolf's death broke. My favorite thing about Tom Wolf. Once came to my college, his alma mater, to do a reading, and a guy I knew saw him on campus, but didn't have a book for him to sign, so he asked him to sign his Ratty Kierkegaard, and Wolf wrote, in ridiculously elaborate handwriting, Tom Wolf is fabulous. Love, Soren Kierkegaard. Rebecca Mackay's new novel, The Great Believers, is out June 18th. Finally this week is Baxter Holmes, a guest from February who recently won a James Beard Media Award for feature writing. Baxter called from Houston, site of the NBA's Western Conference Finals, and I asked him how he thought Wolf would cover that series. I mean, he would, he'd do it with a style and a flair that would be unlike anything else we'd see here and would capture a ton of these details that we'd somehow miss. And you know it was his work, even if there was no byline on it. And the rest of us who are covering this series would read it and feel um, on one level like inspired, but on the other inadequate. Um, but I have, I mean, it, it, it's hard to imagine because he, because of his eye and style, uh, what he would see that we would miss because he just was able, it seemed like to see a whole other world at times that, so yeah, so I can't even, you know, I, I'd feel foolish even trying to imagine, but I know it'd be, I know it'd be something to remember. Got to figure it wouldn't have much to do with the actual games or the actual game itself. I can't imagine him bringing in a lot of the ba- the actual basketball to it. No, he'd probably, I mean, the, I imagine that he would cover the scene incredibly well if it was, uh, you know, if it was involved the crowd, if it involved, you know, different pyrotechnics for getting the game started for, you know, the, the, the scene outside the arena. Um, he would put you there in a way that would, you know, it'd make you feel like you were there, but just not like you, you'd know what the entire atmosphere was like, not just what was taking place on the court. and he he'd build it up in such a way. Yeah, I mean, it's like even just trying to wrap my head around all the things I imagine that he would do is kind of staggering. When did you first discover Wolf? I was thinking about this yesterday. Um, he, I, I was in college, uh, I believe, right after either my junior or senior year, and I was taking a, a summer sports writing class at OU, uh, University of Oklahoma, and there was this professor who came in who was a magazine writer and he introduced all of us to, there was like a handful of required works, maybe a half dozen. Most of them are, are in the front of the uh, best American sports writing of the century collection. Mm-hmm. And that w- one of the assigned stories one day was that story about that uh, Tom Wolf wrote on junior Johnson. And I've never, uh, you know, so many of those stories are really iconic, you know, Gay Talese's piece on Joe DiMaggio, for instance. But I, that piece that Tom Wolf wrote on Junior Johnson just stopped me in my tracks. And, you know, that's been my f- favorite sports story ever since. What about that piece stopped you cold? I had never read a story or anything where someone played with language in a way that he did. I mean, at that point in my life, and even still, 
you know, as, as writers, you, you're conformed, you're taught about various rules with language um, and respecting the reader's attention. And you kind of, you know, can, you, you kind of crawl before you can walk, walk before you can run. And here his prose were just like sprinting across the page maniacally. And I just had never seen anybody if it was, you know, exclamation points or one word sentences or just, you know, uh, describing certain sounds with words that go on forever. Uh, he played with language in a way and broke so many quote unquote rules that I had never seen before. And it made it such an, an enter an incredibly entertaining read that it also, it, it gave me confidence in a way that like, you know, you can, that it can be done. You know, I certainly didn't think at that point in time that I could do it like he could do it or, and I, I certainly don't know if anybody ever thinks that they honestly can do what Tom Wolfe did. But that piece, uh, it really gave me a sense of what is possible. And that and that it's so much more than maybe I had ever even imagined. It's funny. I was looking, I, I, I you know, brought out a couple of my Tom Wolfe books uh, the other night and, uh, you know, looked up some of his pieces. And it is funny how when I realized that, he breaks like every single rule I tell my students about exclamation points, not to mention multiple exclamation points, but just using exclamation points and, you know, first person and the, uh, the onomatopoeia he uses. I mean, it really is staggering to, to think that like, you know, what we teach and what we learn about writing, then you read Wolf and it's like doing everything opposite, but he pulls it off. It works in a, in a way that I don't think, you know, few people, if anybody else could make it work. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And, um, it's, again, it's inspiring. It also, I, there's untold number of writers who have read Wolf and wanted to kind of pull off what he pulled off or try to maybe play with style in an aggressive way. And we all crashed and burned. I mean, I think, I think it's almost a rite of passage for a writer to be inspired by his style, try to mimic it in some way, and then just fail miserably. And it brings you back down to earth and shows you in some ways how incredibly gifted and unique he was. Um, and a lot of the ways in which he would play with language, and I'm talking like specifically that Junior Johnson piece, although it's, this you know holds true for a lot of his work, it really does respect the level or like kind of the, the scene or the mood or the vibe of wherever it is he's at. So he would kind of conform his playful style to, you know, I mean, like that piece is, is there's a lot of Southern in it and he tries to instill like the Southern culture, even into his prose by, his, by his pacing and so much more. So, um, you know, times, you, you know, I've heard people say it might be a little gimmicky, but that's, you know, his, he's just, he's such a unique stylist that it's, it's different, but yeah, he, um, I'd never read anyone in my life who broke the rules like he did and pulled it off and made like such a timeless, unbelievable piece that you'll never forget. And uh, what that does for any writer, but I think especially a young writer, I mean, it's hard to put into words. Did you ever have a, did you yourself ever have your Tom Wolf face? I don't think, I, I don't think I ever really tried to, and this, <laughs> I didn't think highly of myself enough to even give it a shot because, I recognized that he was on such an incredibly high level. And I was just so in awe of the amount of reporting that was in his pieces um, that I, I didn't think that I could pull something like that off. Even, you know, when I was a young cub reporter at the LA Times, I was 
so concerned with just trying to just get a basic lead down that I didn't dare step outside my lane and try to play with language in a way that he did. But um, reading his work and rereading it, it does give you a sense of, you know, maybe I don't have to break all the rules, but you can, you can, you can be more interesting and play around maybe more than you might. It gives you confidence to, to, um, you know, break outside the box a little bit. Now he just like shattered that box into little bits <laughs> again, like it, but it, but I think, but I do think that reading his work, even if you don't necessarily go through a phase, it does give you a confidence a little bit of, uh, the way that you can maybe play around with language and style, um, not necessarily maybe to his degree, but at least, you know, more than, more than you, you might have otherwise. Yeah, I, I remember reading Wolf uh, when I was in college and, he, and I have a, a young reporter. And I think I had a similar reaction to you. Like, oh, yeah, I can't do that. Like, I, thinking yeah. meant like, okay, you're clearly from Pluto and I can't do write like that. And that's totally fine. But you're right, I think, in that he's one of those writers in that, that, that kind of grouping of journalists and long-form writers who kind of you read and it's like, you know, for me, it was kind of Charlie Pierce was that kind of guy, you know, kind of has some similarities oh, I yeah. think, to Wolf in that, oh, sports writing can be this. I can do this as a writer rather than, you know, I think the, you know, the the, the basic stuff we all grow up reading in newspapers and magazines. And he, Wolf is one of those guys who I think you're right, kind of makes it, oh, I never thought I could write like this or from this perspective. Yeah, and the, some of the people you brought up, you know, I can remember where I was when I read The Man Amen by Charlie Pierce. And that, you know, and there was another story that stopped me in my tracks. And it gave me, uh, you know, even the way he opened that piece with that, with his, with the joke, um, I was like, wow, I never knew that a story could start like this. Or even, you know, in reading um, uh, uh, Gay Talese's pieces on D DiMaggio, you know, the man, you know, the, he says in there, like, the man from New York. I didn't know until the professor I had, the same professor that introduced me to Tom Wolf, that the man from New York was Gay Talese. He was right. inserting himself into a story. And I'd never read a story before then where a writer had introduced himself in a way, but maybe like a subtle way, you know, so to speak, but not first person. And so, yeah, these, you know, these landmark pieces and, and certainly this one, you know, that I mentioned from Tom Wolf was for me, they kind of, they, they show you what's possible. And, uh, you, they're think they're really important at that formative age. You know that story, the his his uh, descriptions, the way he carried it, but the reporting was just remarkable. You know, there's, there's the pacing. You know, there's times when you the energy is so high in the story, you feel like you're in the race itself, mm -hmm. which I come to appreciate more now as I understand more about you know narrative arc and and so forth, doing magazine stories, just like the the way in which he instills the spirit of that scene. Uh, through language to make you feel like you're there, not just that you can see and hear and smell it, but you almost feel it in your chest. You know, the fear that a driver has when he looks in his rearview mirror and he sees Junior Johnson charging apart, you know, behind him. So um, there's, you know, I, it, it's a lot of his work is just is, <laughs> I mean, this this is why he has, you know, front page obit in the New York Times today with a two page uh, double truck spread in the back. Um, he is a titan, and you know we we were lucky to have him, um, you know, collectively. And, and there's you know the impact that he's had on writing and in journalism, and the ability to kind of flex a little bit more stylistically. I think for all of us, you know, it, it again, it's hard to put into words.
You mentioned the reporting and a couple other people I've talked to for this uh, for this week's show have said the same thing. And the pacing of it is, is interesting. But I think so many, you know, it's very easy when you read Wolf and you come to Wolf to get caught up in the style. And certainly he had, you know, yeah. white suits and, you know, he was iconic, you know, absolutely and, st- and stylistic and stylish and all that. But, you know, when you look at, at, at his work now, especially doing what you do now for ESPN, you know, talk about his reporting and talk about his kind of pacing of a story and kind of like, you know, almost like the meat that really make that substance work. Yeah. Well, you, first of all, you bring up a great point. I think it's easy to get caught up in his style and how he plays with language and that, and lose sight of like all the incredible details that are in the story. So, you know, again, I'll go back to like the Junior Johnson piece, even you know the beginning when he's describing all these different kinds of uh, colors of car or uh, the way, you know, what's being talked at, uh, talked about, you know, in, in specific detail on the radio. Like from the beginning, the details are incredibly focused and it stays that way through the rest of the piece. You know, I remember one of my favorite um, parts of it was where he was describing like the courage that people in this particular part of the country had and how there was an inordinate number of them in that area that had won like Purple Hearts. And so there was something to be said like they're just they're they are a more courageous like lot of people or tribe of people from where he's from. Um, there were you know he he reported to the end of the earth on everything it seemed like in that story you know just the smallest little details everything that he saw um, and heard and smelled and felt and there's so much great dialogue it's it's easy to lose sight of that but it it makes me think you know when I'm out. Um, if I'm, if I'm not doing like a magazine piece or just any piece really to really focus in um, like for instance, if I'm, if it's an important scene or something on all the things, you know, not just one thing, but like every sense um, and all the little small interactions between people, like everything. I mean, he just, it seemed like he was just a vacuum for all these details. It's really, when you read his work, it really is quite, um, it's quite staggering. Um, and I, I, again, I appreciate it more now in, in what I do. So I know that you've mentioned the Junior Johnson piece. Do you have any other favorite Wolf books, pieces that you've read or a good starter place if people are just getting into Wolf or want to kind of find out what all the fuss is about? Yeah, I would say the right stuff. Um, I haven't, there, that's a book I, I'm sad to admit I haven't finished it. It's, it's one of several books I've uh, um, shamefully halfway through, but it is a, uh, I mean, I guess like a lot of his work, it is just an amazing piece. And I, I was introduced to it by a friend of mine who was covering in, uh, aerospace, uh, the aerospace industry for the LA Times. And he was just saying, you know, have you ever read the right stuff? And I hadn't even heard of it. Uh, but he said like, you know, that, that it book is unbelievable. And three pages in, and I was just, I was hooked on it. So um, I, you know, he's one of the, the few authors who I would say every single piece of their writing is something I desperately want to read. Um, and, uh, but the right stuff was a really, you know, for everything that I've read of it so far has, has been great. I also want to go back and read some of his, um, I think back when he was at the New York, Obser- the, either the, no, the Herald Tribune, but some of his early newspaper pieces um, to kind of see how he, you know, before he was like full-blown new journalism style, but to see what he could do in kind of a limited amount of space. 
Yeah, him and Gates I know Gates wrote for the Times for a long time, and it's always I haven't gone back, but it would be interesting to see. Like, are there hints of what they were doing there, uh, like in a very constrained format? That'd be cool to see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, th- th- those those days are obviously pivotal. But um, I, I've read some of Gates early uh, newspaper stuff, and like you could, you know, you can sense it there. You know that what what you would see. Um, later on. And so I'm curious about if it was that way for Tom Wolf. Baxter Holmes from ESPN. As always, thanks for listening to The Other 51. You can find show notes for this episode and all our episodes at sportsmediaguide.com on The Other 51 tab. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. I can highly recommend Overcast for this. Our theme music is by Ellie Moritz. 